I always say it is that your objective is to lead a customer through a corridor and there's lots of doors leading off that corridor and you've got to shut those doors as you go through. Most fundamentally what qualification is, is that you're constantly trying to make sure that you're the right fit and the customer's the right fit for the end goal, which is ultimately them buying the product and extracting value from it. Not by saying that your objective isn't to sell anything to begin with, right? And I think this is where a lot of stuff people go wrong with qualification. It's like, they don't want to buy it. It's like, well, no, they don't even know what you do yet. So <laughs> slow down a little bit. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Aaron Evans. Aaron's the co-founder and head of training and enablement for a new venture called FlowState. It's a B2B sales performance consulting firm that's based in the UK. And Aaron has also been recognized as a top 20 global sales enablement influencer. Now, in today's conversation, Aaron and I dig into the topic of qualification. You know, it's a subject that gets a lot of lip service, but overall qualification is not performed very well by sellers. Now, if I'm working with a sales team or a seller on a lost deal review, I always start the analysis with discovery and qualification because that's where most of the problems start. I mean, discovery being the other side of the coin with qualification. So we'll get into why Aaron likes his why-buy analysis and how to implement this with sellers for qualification. We also dive into objection handling, and Aaron discusses how he uses the feel-felt-found technique to help surface the real question the buyer is posing with their objections, and then how to answer them. So, all this and much, much more, but before we get to Aaron, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it, and if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review, so thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Big fan of your work. Lovely to be oh, here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Um, and likewise, so you're based in the UK. So tell us a little bit about you and what you do. Sure, yeah. So I work for an organization called Global Data. Um, it's actually the fastest growing business analytics organization on the London Stock Exchange. And my role is uh, probably, I was going to say traditional sales enablement, but it probably isn't in my organization. But I basically am responsible for the enablement for about 500 reps globally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's building systems. So the operational side of it, all the way through to the delivery side of it with training, coaching, uh, so yeah, it's like spinning plates while herding cats with uh, 500 staff, but uh, but a lot of fun in the, in the process. <laughs> That's I, I like that that description. It's yeah, herding cats while spinning plates. Uh, it'd be a good variety show act. Um, yeah, indeed. So, but you're also you've got sort of a side hustle too, or you're you're putting up sales training videos. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I run a YouTube channel, um, basically trying to sort of cut through the noise of a lot of sales training and. Uh, uh, you know, sales motivation. And I, I decided to just give away as many practical hints and tips that are actually usable, scalable, and ultimately going to help salespeople get better at their job. So I decided to uh, to start a YouTube channel, which has been sort of fairly successful uh, yeah. over the last four or five months. Yeah, you're getting some good views. Um, so you say cutting through the noise of sales training. So what's what's the noise you're cutting through? Yeah, good question. I think, look, I mean, I've, I've been in sales enablement um, for about 13 years now, and obviously some of that time before was spent in sales. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I use I use LinkedIn as a really good kind of barometer for where sales training's at. And I find that there's a, there's a lot of white noise. And I think being a rep in sales nowadays, actually, it, the hardest part of the job is to discern real credible advice from sort of that kind of motivational, just show hustle and grit and just get it done. Arr. Yeah, yeah the mach- macho sales, yes. 
Yeah, it seems to be the only uh, the only industry where you get that, right? If you were a carpenter, no one's first piece of advice would be, right, you just got to work hard. It's like, well, no, no, but how do I make the table? <laughs> That's the bit I really care about. So, um, just work hard. What, you don't need instructions. You know, just get up at 5 a.m. and read all this information. Like, no, no, how, give me some practical tips, right? So, um, so yeah, so uh, I, 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 I used LinkedIn as the barometer. I started posting about a year ago during lockdown, actually, just posting all my experience and my views and uh and my, my tips and hints and the stuff that I, I typically train in organizations that I work either when I'm full-time or as a consultant, which sure. has always been fairly successful. And um, yeah, people have responded really well to it. Um, and hopefully it will continue. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to talk about some of that. Yeah. I think you said you started this during shutdown. I was last night, I was, my wife and I were going through. So one of our favorite diversions during lockdown was Andrew Cotter videos. You familiar with him with his dog, no. Mabel, Mabel and Olive? No, I'm oh. not. Okay. You got to look it up. So he's a sportscaster in the UK, and he started filming these YouTube videos, like doing commentating on his dog's actions and creating sort of fake scenarios, like you know competitions over a bone or something. They're, <laughs> they're hilarious. But anyway, so that was <laughs> anybody listening, check out Andrew Cotter, C O T T E R. He's becoming a big star too. Um, anyway, out. so so let's talk about qualification because that's one of the things that that I'm passionate about. I think. Also, people, there's a lot of noise about it, to your point, most of which is incorrect, at least in my estimation. And I think it plays such a large part in sales success. I mean, I think you would probably agree, right? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I can go back, I think, through, do any sort of, <laughs> as I have done, as a consultant, I go into companies, and we look at you know past results, and I'll go do look at lost deal review, and I yeah, 99% of the time could trace the failure back to some failure in qualification. Yeah, I mean, it's, I always say it as that your, your objective is to lead a customer through a corridor, and there's lots of doors leading off that corridor, and you've got to shut those doors as you go through. And that's fundamentally what qualification is, is that you're you're constantly trying to make sure that you're the right fit and the customer's the right fit for what for the end goal, which is ultimately them buying the product and extracting value from it, right? I mean, that's that's fundamentally why we're there. Yeah. Uh, but not by saying that, your objective isn't to sell anything to begin with, right? And I think this is where a lot of sales people go wrong with qualification. It's like, they don't want to buy it. It's like, well, no, they don't even know what you do yet. So <laughs> slow down a little bit. Or, to your point, they're just not a prospect. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is I think, is, again, part of the issue with, with the way qualification is taught in, in many instances is that it's the sort of refusal to believe that someone's not actually a prospect for what you what you have. As opposed, just because they responded to an email, they filled out a form, they've got a lead score in your system. It's like, yeah, they're not really a prospect. So, yeah, you could go through and spend a lot of time selling them, but you're not going to win or it's going to end up in a no decision. And you should be able to know this ahead of time. I'd, I'd argue that it's actually one of the best skills a salesperson can have is the ability to qualify out. I think that um, so many reps get an emotional attachment to an opportunity or a prospect because they've got a very thin pipeline. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're desperate for a sale to come in. So they start injecting faith into their opportunities where it's like, I'm convinced this one's going to come in. Where it's like, no, no, you should have qualified out this one out weeks ago. And you've wasted a load of time <laughs> in right. that process. But don't you see it also the other way, though, too, is that especially in SaaS businesses, there's this, you see this insistence on, you know, you need a 5X pipeline coverage. And so it's not that their pipelines are thin, is they're dictating their sales, you know, their investment of time based on the fact they need to maintain a certain coverage ratio, which is 
also as dangerous as having a thin pipeline. Yeah, I agree. And again, I think it comes down to objectives, right? I think um, if we look at the, what is considered to be the kind of early stage qualification is someone actually wanting to see your product, right? So you've called a customer and they want to sit a demonstration. But the reality is if I phoned my mum now and said, mum, do you want to sit a demonstration? She probably would. There's no <laughs> chance of her ever buying our product, right? But she'd probably sit down. And I guess... Yeah. She's developed a hobby in data analytics, so you know now. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, I, yeah. I doubt it very much, but yeah, possibly. But again, I, I guess like if we're talking about really early stage qualification, right, that criteria is so critical to working out whether there's someone who is even deemed sitting down with for an hour to, to learn about their organization and mm-hmm. understand their challenges. And I think it's become diluted with the SDR model as well, because SDRs, their objective isn't always to make sure that the sale's completed. Their objective is to book demonstrations for the AE. Right. It's, they're actually they're actually they're actually two um, outputs that inputs that are, that are fighting against each other because the right. AE actually wants quality, right? So um, I find the best SDR organisations are the ones that are actually targeted on that uh, those leads turning into revenue as well. But then you start getting a fight because they think their AEs aren't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> right? so, I gave you a good lead and you didn't close it. Yeah, exactly. They, they then become the uh, they then become incredibly critical of the AE, which is always difficult to deal with as well. Well, but that's. That's yeah, but that that's just the old marketing sales argument, right? We've unfortunately SDRs are really a marketing function. We've moved them into sales in many cases, and it's yeah, we've just taken that argument out of marketing and brought it within sales. Um, yeah, but the point is, you know, SDRs aren't really trained or enabled to really qualify to do. They can do. Are they qualified to take a demo? Yeah, sure, and they can be better at that, and we need to do better at that. But that's. You know, and some organizations see this expectation that, or not even expectation. Well, it's sort of an expectation. Is is you look at the way they determine how they define what a sales qualified opportunity is. Is yeah, the SDR qualified them, and they ask them these questions. You got these answers, and I'm like, no, 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 that's not qualified. But yeah, you, know, you look at most internal sales processes. And they define qualification as a stage, right? Yeah, we've got a single stage. It's a one-time event. We've got exit criteria for it. And I, just based on what you were saying earlier, I, I think you'd probably agree with my perspective, which is that I qualify and I want people to qualify every time they interact with the buyer. Because as of the course, buyer goes yeah. through the buyer goes through their process, they're evolving, they're learning, they're changing, their their understanding of the problem they want to solve should be enhanced and expanded their understanding of what the uh, opportunities are and the options are to solve the problem should be enhanced as they go through the process. So what we qualified them on initially may not be valid a month later. Yeah. And again, I think that qualification isn't an event, right? It's it's something that's constantly happening through the right. interaction with, of, of the salesperson. And, and I want to be really clear and the organization that they're selling to, right? Right. Now, I think, I think, it's interesting because you've got two competing processes operating at the same time. You've got a sales process, which is very much about, you know, turning an opportunity into contracted business. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a customer's buying process, which in every single business is completely unique. And their objective is about making sure they're, you know, hedging a bet that's going to generate ROI. And there's usually lots of people involved in that decision or at least have a say in that decision. Right. And it's very difficult to align those two processes in a really neat way where both parties feel like they're going on a journey together. Now, in my experience, the sales processes, but I'd use the term guided sales process more importantly. The, the, the ones that work well are when the customer-led events are actually the ones that are 
denoting where you are in that sales where you are in that sales process. Exactly. Not events that you're you're doing, right? So I always say to reps, like open your email now, attach your proposal and send it out to every single person you know. Congratulations, you've just sent out a thousand proposals. None of them are going to come in. <laughs> what you really want is a customer turning around saying, can you please send me a proposal? And this is what I want in the proposal. Ah, that's a customer-led action. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, this is this brings up a, a broader point for, yeah, whether it's specifically enablement, sales operations, sales management, is that it's like we have to sort of come to an understanding now. We talk about how, uh, you know, modern sales. This is one of my one of my pet peeves, right? People talk about modern sales, and I'll say, "Well, what is modern sales?" Well, basically, what it turns out to be is we're doing the same old shit we've always done. We're just putting a layer of technology on it, mm-hmm. on top, right? Because you look at most companies' sales processes, and I did this a couple months ago. I googled sales processes and looked at all the res- <laughs> hundreds of results that people put online. And it's like, oh, yeah, same process stage-wise and so on that I learned how to use in sales 40 years ago, mm-hmm. right? So there's nothing new here. So but what could be new is just what you just said is what if instead of denominating our stages by what we do, we do it by what the customer needs to get done? Suddenly that start, starts making sense. That would be modern, Right. Yes and no, right? Because we, we, we create sales processes that encourage these actions out of the client, but we don't explicitly look at them as what means that the, the opportunity is progressing, right? Right. Um, and again, I think it is a battle because look, the reason that we put artificial urgency on customers is not because we want the deal in. Like if we if we did that part right, we'd build relationships and we'd wait for the logical time for the deal to come in. But there's external pressures on salespeople, like the number bearing down on their target, like the pressure from their manager, like you know the pressure from the organization and what the organization is trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And this is where you start getting malpractice because you take your eye off the prize, which is the fundamentals of selling is helping someone. That's what it is. Oh, it's you know, it's it's pretty simple. Well, so here's here's my definition of sales. Just Building on that. So, I mean, do you have a, a one-line definition of sales besides just helping someone? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, fundamentally, I'd say it's that. It's 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 helping someone improve. That's that's what it yeah. is. Whatever that's a, 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 an organization, a process, whatever it is you're selling. Yeah. I mean, mine is is along the same lines. It's selling is listen to understand what's the most important thing to the buyer and help them get it. Yeah. Pretty much spot on. Yeah. I'd agree yeah. with that. that. That's it. <laughs> yeah. That's all we're trying to do. We're trying to listen, to ask questions, listen, to understand what's the most important thing to the buyer, then help them get it. And it's not any more complicated than that. No, I agree. I mean, like, it, 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 I always find it interesting, and you, you said it before, but if you distill down sales to fundamentally what it is, it's find a problem and solve it. And if you can't yeah. solve it, you're not the right person to solve it, right? And there's this necessity, and I find it nowadays with modern selling, you know, to use that term again, there's necessity to try and inject in things that, in my opinion, are actually superfluous. Like, there's so much talk about this sort of pop psychology in sales nowadays. And I see a lot of it in on LinkedIn where people are talking about stuff that is deeply interesting, but I don't personally see it as being something that affects someone purchasing a product. Well, give us an example. Well, you know, you hear about, like, uh, people saying things like, I see this a lot on LinkedIn. Here's a script that will always work. Say this. <laughs> pause for 15 seconds. Once you pause, say this word here. This yeah. will disarm the client, and then they'll feel like this. It's like, 
no, like, you know, I, I get the intention. I think it's really good. And it may well work for them. That's the point, right? It may well work for them. But in the common practices of selling, which is basically the majority of people in sales are middling to low performers, right? That's the reality of sales. And our objective in sales enablement is to get those middling and low performers up to a standard where they are happy in the job, they are profitable, and they can maintain their position in the company. That's, that's fundamentally it is, right? The oh, next yeah. step to be to get them up to the very top, right? That's, that's what we want to do. But realistically, it's hard to get everyone up to the very top. That's why there's only 53% of people are only hitting target every single month, right? Well, yeah. But I mean, even to your point about, you know, getting them, that first stage you just, you defined is, you know, you get them sort of consistently good, right? Is, is I think the goal is just to help people become the best version of themselves. And for many people, that's never going to be the top. And that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, just the statistics work out. There's there's not room at the top for everybody, right? Yeah, of course. And that's fine. This is, but this is what I think we need to be doing as enablement, and more importantly, as sales leadership, is yeah. how do we help people? To your point, precisely is is I agree with you, but a lot of the stuff that's out there on on LinkedIn, it's it's not that it's necessarily invalid, but it it might work for one person. That's fine. Yeah, I think. Ideas deserve an audience, but mm-hmm. I think what we're using technology for in the wrong hands, the way it's being used, is this is how this is how Jennifer sells. Everybody needs to sell like Jennifer, right? You need to yeah. use these three words at this point in time in the conversation, and and that's not the best use of the technology. The best use of the technology is as a coach is to say, I understand where this person sits. Is how can I help this person become the best version of themselves? How can I coach them using these technologies to become the best version of them so they feel more fulfilled? Yes, they may not be a top performer, but they're good at what they do. And this is one of the myths within sales. I wonder if interested in what you feel about it is because you obviously spend time on LinkedIn. Is you know we're at the myth of the top performer. Right, everything's about the top performer, and when people you tell people to be good at something, it's like it's a pejorative. Now you want to be good, mm-hmm. and when did good become bad? <laughs> good is good. I, if I was running a sales organization, I want, yeah, I'm going to have a few top performers, a few at the bottom. I want the rest of the people to be good at what they do mm-hmm. and to feel fulfilled. Yeah, I mean, tell that to any CEO, right? I bet they'd be biting your hand off. That, that, yeah. <laughs> that's the point. Like I look at the sales enablement function, I think that. Basically, if we can get everyone better than they were yesterday, we're doing a really good job, right? That's that's a great thing to have. Uh, And in conjunction with the manager, who's, in my opinion, sole objective, the sole objective of a sales manager should be to make their people better than they were yesterday. But for me, that's that's the key thing. And when you put those those two objectives together with sales enablement and and sales management, it actually becomes a recipe for real success. Right. But what percentage of sales managers do you think? Especially these days, since the default oftentimes is to default to the metrics, right? And manage people on their metrics as opposed to really understand, you know, the same thing we talked about selling. Yeah, understand, listen to understand what's the most important thing to them is what coaches and managers need to do with their person that they works for them. You need to listen to understand what's the most important thing to them, help them achieve that. Yeah, I find there's way too much output focus and not enough input focus. Like, right. you know, I think about the role of a manager, and I thought about this a lot, right, of a sales manager, I should say more specifically. And I, and I group it into four fundamental objectives. The first one, obviously, we spoke about is making their rep better than they were yesterday. The second one is actually translating the organizational values in a way that people actually really want to work for the company and they want to fight for the company. 
but then they have a responsibility at a local level to create a, a, a set of localized values where the team want to work for them and they mm-hmm. believe in them as a leader. And right. lastly, at some point, they should report on that right. when asked. Where right. do you think they spend most of their time reporting? Yeah. It's like, no, like 75% of the job is actually the stuff that's genuinely going to drive like real engagement, real change and real like achievement. Um, and, you know, you, you, you know, sales enablement better than anyone, right? It's like there's a battle between sales enablement and sales management in my experience where they're trying to get things simple and make sure that sales enablement aren't complicating things and meddling. But at the same time, our objective is to get everyone to a really good standard by doing the right practices. Which, which is ironic because that really, they should be advocating for the same things. And so to your point precisely is, is yeah, if, if a sales manager is spending 75, you know, a disproportionate amount of their time, whatever the, the percentage is, reporting or being focused on the data inputs to the reporting. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've got to create a new category for those. I call those sales bosses. There's, there's, there's kind of boss to the numbers, right? Yeah. Whereas the other category I call sales leaders. And they're the ones that lead from the perspective of thinking, I'm only going to succeed to the extent that my people succeed. So what can I do to make my people more successful? And to your point about you know being 1% better every day. Um, and yeah, we have way too many sales bosses these days and not enough sales leaders. I do, I do feel that it's it's often the 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 fault of the layers above them as well, right? And I think there's oh, some, absolutely some of it sits on them. And I, you know, I always say that if if your if your boss is constantly asking you for numbers, it's your CRM that's broken. It's not you that's broken, right? There should be an easy way for your CEO to click a button now and find out right. every Having single story. Yeah, right. like it's not it's not that hard. Um, and I, and, I, and I do have enormous amount of sympathy for sales managers because I do feel that um, they're not always set up for success in lots of organizations I've worked in. I agree, 100%. I think this is, to your point about the fault layer lays above them, is, you know, sort of my, what <laughs> draw my beat quite frequently these days is that, you know, in the U.S., I think the figure is they, we spend $20 billion a year on sales training, of which there's no breakout for management, but yeah, I'm willing to bet that at most we spend five to ten percent of that on training and enabling sales managers. Mm. And so we put them in this position. We don't give them the tools. We don't train them. You know, they know nothing about performance or performance management. And this is not a personal failing. They just haven't been given this information. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. and that really sort of starts at the top because they make the point as or the decision is, yeah, you know, we're going to allocate our training budget to. You know, generally ineffective training methodologies to uh, to train our sellers, and we're not going to enable the managers that make it all happen. So, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. My, my thought is, if we're spending ten percent on last point on that, if we're spending ten percent of the twenty billion on training managers. What if we flip that ratio? What if yeah. we spent ninety percent of the money on enabling management, frontline managers and above, in things like performance improvement, performance management, uh, you know, coaching, and so on. And just spent ten percent on sellers. I ask people all the time. So, what do you think would happen to sales if we did that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's a classic case of trickle down effect, right? And again, it even starts with things like training them on hiring, right? I mean, mm-hmm. basic things like that. Like often they've got a team of duds that aren't right, don't fit, or you know, a lost souls who shouldn't really belong in sales. Right. And it's because they're not they're not hired right, and they don't have a, have a spot competency. 
one of the most effective modules I've ever brought into any organization, and I often do it very, very early, is let's get the coaching standards up to scratch with managers. Because mm-hmm. if you can nail that early and you can get a good coaching cadence, a real data-driven coaching, where they're working on proper competency and they're mm-hmm. getting their reps better, you'll have this enormous sort of effect where it will just trickle down sure. the organization and the quality of all of the uh, individual contributions just goes through the roof. It's such a basic way of looking at it. And you just, you know, it, it, it's such a blind spot for businesses. Um, and, and I feel I feel that, again, to, to echo your point, is that there's there's an enormous under uh, underappreciation and, and, and also underinvestment in those it's managers. That, oh, absolutely. And, and easily solved. Easily solved. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it requires a real shift in mindset. So, yeah, I've talked about this on the show is, for instance, you know, let's take an organization your size. Should you have like you know, 500 sellers? Would it be unreasonable to say, wow, maybe we should have a, like a sports psychologist on the staff, right? A performance psychologist. Because, yeah, we know psychology is a huge part of what, what happens performance-wise with people. Um, why wouldn't it make sense? You hire, if you have 500 people on staff, it create one more headcount for a psychologist. What I, why wouldn't an organization your size, why wouldn't it make sense to have maybe specialized coaches, right? I mean, I take a lot of examples from, from professional soccer. Um, yeah, they have a whole raft of specialized coaches. You know, Liverpool's got a throw-in coach, yeah. right? So why don't we have coaches, very specialized coaches, who are, they are trained performance coaches, right? Um, why? We know things like sleep, uh, exercise, nutrition. You know, why don't we have life coaches? You know, in an organization your size, you're talking about an additional three or four headcount. Why wouldn't we do that? And yet, no one, no one's thinking about this. This is a, you know, selling is a performance-based profession. And we don't invest in, other than the sort of traditional ways, which haven't proven to be very successful, in improving performance and looking at the whole salesperson. Yeah, I think that, you know, you look at a lot of CEOs, and I'm well, not a CEO, it's probably not the right way of labeling it, but organizations as a whole, and they, they want a direct result to revenue when it comes to sales. Hmm. So if you are not seen to be actually bringing some money in directly, I mean, you know, like you've been doing sales enablement long enough. I remember when, when sales enablement was like a luxury position, because it was like, you know, you, you guys, you're not carrying a number, you're not generating revenue. What right do you have to be part of the sales organization? Right. Maybe it's changing. Maybe it's changing, right? I'm, I'm seeing a lot more specialized sales enablement, as an example. I think you're getting CS sales enablement. You're getting before sale, after sale, mm-hmm. post-sale, pre-sale sales enablement. And I think, and I can only imagine that the more sales enablement becomes important, which it is, for me, it's slowly becoming the most important role in the organization. As you can see, it's moving higher up the organization. It's mm-hmm. getting involved in the in the more strategic part of the business. Right. It's the conduit between almost every single department in, in, in an organization that I can only imagine that those roles will become more specified uh, and more specialist. And ultimately, it will sit under the sales enablement function, which is where it should sit. Um, so I, I, I have faith in that that being the way forward. I just don't think we're there yet. To be honest with you. Yeah. But, but it's definitely a shift, right? There's More definitely a shift. In yeah. Well, I think it's 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 your point. Is is it has to start at the top? Is they have to look at what are the roles that can contribute to an overall performance improvement that yeah aren't the traditional roles as we've defined them. 
Yeah, and, and just because somebody carries the title doesn't mean they know squat about coaching and all these other aspects we talked about. Yeah, and here's just another to the point about the psychologist. I mean, there's a recent survey out as part of Mental Health Awareness Month here in the United States about sellers. It was done by uncrushed.org. And, and, you know, as of, let's say, roughly beginning of May, 75% of sellers report feeling stressed or highly stressed. Uh, you know, the rate of, you know, self-reports of mental health issues is, you know, is, I don't know, 40% or 42%. But we know as adults, at least in the U.S., and I imagine it might be too, not too dissimilar in the U.K., is, is you know, fully two-thirds of adults at some point in their life are going to encounter mental health challenges. So why aren't we looking at that? You know, 75% of sellers feel stressed or extremely stressed. It has an impact on performance. Don't we need to address that proactively? Don't we need to to say, what can we do differently? How can we teach resilience to people if that's one of the clues? How can we change uh, you know, how we structure? I mean, yes, we still have to perform. Not saying you're going to perform at a lower level. But you know, we're burning people out. And, and it's not just COVID that was doing it. Because these numbers were high even before COVID. So why don't we acknowledge that and bring this in, as I said, like a staff psychologist or whatever. People can, can real time, can deal with some of these, get help on some of these issues that we know are affecting them both at work and at home. I mean, sales is unique, right? You, you use, the, you use the, uh, the example of, sort of relating it to sport, which I think is probably the closest um, sort of parallels you can draw. But I can't think of another industry where every single month you go back to zero and you've got to prove yourself again. Yeah. And what you've done prior to that has been worth absolutely nothing, I mean, nothing. the day after. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, back back to the carpenter thing again. Imagine building a chair and then someone kicks it to the ground to rubble and then says, build it again every <laughs> single month, right? And um, I think, you'd I think get, it takes... Well, you'd consider that torture. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, the, right. it, 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 it takes a very unique mindset to do that for a sustained period of time. I think no one is infallible. Eventually, they're going to fall foul to that process and, and, and it's going to affect them. And I think I think businesses need to look at sales performance on a longer basis, I think. And they need to look at bad performance on a longer basis as well. Mm-hmm. You see too many businesses that look at one month as being as being someone or one quarter as being someone's failed. Right. Now, what then tends to happen is as a performance program starts, well, what we should be doing in sales enablement is spotting those early signs and using it as a support mechanism mm-hmm. versus a kind of, you know, a, 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 a life raft where it's like, right, right you're going to go down, right? And I think we need to spot those signs of, of poor performance, which might be a whole myriad of other issues, including, you know, mental health. Yes. And we should use it as a support function to get them back on track. Yeah. Um, looking at someone over, the, over a month or a quarter is not a sign of success. I mean, you're a football fan, right? Oh, yeah. if, it only took, if only took one game or four games, then you know it wouldn't be a very long league. It takes it takes thirty eight games to be successful, right? Yeah, um, and it sounds as you in that way. Well, I, I agree, hundred percent on that. Is is and that's that's why I think we're starting to see some tools and some companies. Uh, it's a company called Leon in the United States. It's you know creating this wellness predictive index, you know, for using what they call wellness intelligence for your your sales teams because. Uh, and you're seeing a lot more about you know people with using wearables and and mm-hmm. so on to track sleep and and recovery because okay if uh, yeah I had a conversation last week with Brian Smith the uh, founder of one of the co-founders of Leon who <clears throat> excuse me was a sports science consultant to 
the United States Track and Field Federation, and so you know professional track and field athletes that represent the country, and and you know the the comparison to you know like building up your endurance and your resistance to stress as you train, let's say, to run a marathon. What you're doing is you're your training program is designed through rest and recovery and workout is to help your body adapt to ever-increasing loads of stress mm. yeah, so that you can run a marathon at a higher pace or whatever your race is. Um, yeah, we're com- this is the way where the mind works for sales as well. And we're completely unmindful. It's just the science exists. Mm. Uh, and if we... Take acknowledge, you know, acknowledge that the fact it exists. And that's why I say you're seeing now more and more companies sort of say, "Well, yeah, how's your sleep affecting?" And you can track, you know, how your sleep affects your your performance. You, know, you got a big presentation. How to go based on, you know, you only had two hours of sleep, or uh, you know, just a cumulative effect of stress. Yeah, maybe you need to take a day off. You know, they do that in soccer, right? I mean, I'll turn yeah, in the match and one is watch. You know, one of my favorite players is like, "Well, he's not even on the, not even named on the 18 for the day." Well, because they are so tightly measured in terms of their rest and recovery that they decided, look, it was too big of a risk to have that person not performing that day. The problem we have, right, is that if you're working for an incredibly large organization that's making billions of dollars in profit, that becomes a no-brainer. But when we look at sales, the majority of sales organizations are actually in that long tail of, you know, TSC companies where, you know, if you're working for a startup, you know, it's like, you, the minimum is you put in eighteen-hour days, and that's it, right? You got to work as hard as the founder. So, I've, but I've I've done it eight or nine times, right? And and I can tell you that it wouldn't make a damn bit of difference if you know once a month, Aaron needed to take a day off because he was working so hard. He needed to recover yeah, because his body needed to recover because I need Aaron to be there for the long term. And this is yeah, you know, this is a thing that that. Yeah, increasingly, I think we're getting data about. We understand at one level, and yet the culture is such that it's difficult to get senior leaders to sort of look at it to the point you made earlier and say, "This is a little bit of investment now, but if we track this, yeah, I think we're going to get a payback over the long term." And it's not the CEO shouldn't, yeah, they just have to make a decision on it. Someone, you know, at the CRO level or sales enablement level, someone has to put the case before them and say, we think this is going to make a huge difference. Let's experiment with it. And I think we'd find lots of people willing to experiment with it if they would make the case. Oh, yeah, I don't doubt that. I mean, look, it's really interesting you say this because on a, on a kind of on a, on a micro level, I see it in, in, in people's pipeline, right, where they've missed their target three months in a row and they're desperate to get deals in. And you start seeing some really weird behaviors, like really, mm-hmm. really strange behaviors. And if you get the opportunity to say, look, you're actually going to take a month off and not worrying about bringing any revenue, your objective is actually to build some meaningful pipeline that's going to serve you for the next six months. And all of a sudden, that coming up for air, that getting off the hamster wheel, that you know removal of pressure right. is where you start seeing real performance. You know, again, I come back to sales enablement. Like we find there's competing pressures where we're trying to put in place best practice, we're trying to put in place the right ways of doing things, and we're trying to scale excellence. Whereas often the, the the thing you're competing against is someone saying, "I don't have time to do that. I don't. I can't do that because mm-hmm. if I make a change now, it means I might not do this." Right. And it's not, it's it, it's that strange abductive logic that we have to we have to fight against to to make sure that we are seeing success. Right. It's it's hard. It's very very difficult. Well, it is hard. I mean, think about it. You know, in 
in the Valley these days, you know, the stat is the average tenure of a CRO is 18 months. So they're coming in, they can't even implement their program for more than like one full accounting cycle, right? I mean, if you're trying to make changes, so now you can understand why change doesn't happen because they come in, they have sort of what they think is a system and a process that works. It's not optimal by any stretch of imagination, but hey, if I can make it last for 12 to 18 months, I might get another 12 to 18 months. And so the fear factor is, look, I can't possibly perturb anything during this period. And certainly in, in that space, I think that is one of the real problems is that yeah, people feel they just don't have time to make a change. And so we're persisting in these same behaviors that have been going on forever. Yeah. Uh, in fact, maybe worse than they were even two decades ago. And yeah, someone's got to have the courage to step up and say, yeah, we're going to break the cycle on this. I agree. I agree. I mean, it's, it's um, all right, gosh. We got we got really sidetracked. We were talking about qualification initially. Yeah. <laughs> we need to qualify it, ourselves a little bit. It's the way it works on this show. You got to come along for the ride because you never know which way we're going to go. Yeah, yeah. I spend yeah hours preparing for each of these interviews, and if we're lucky, we use a third of the things I prepare to talk about because you know it's it's just an interesting topic, and it's this is a peep this is a people business. We're really fundamentally talking about people and how we help people become the best version of themselves. Yeah, I, I remember a, a quote, and I've brought this up on the show a couple of times. This is from one of the Premier League teams, and they were talking about how they uh, bring new players onto the side. And they were really specifically talking about young players, so it's people at the beginning of their careers. So in this case, you know, it could be an 18, 19-year-old, but you know, make it the equivalent of a 21-year-old joining a, a sales team. And I wrote this down because it just struck me. He said, yeah, what we do is we spend a few months and we train the person before we train the player, right? So we help them adapt this whole idea of being a professional. What's it mean, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the lifestyle, the nutrition, the, the sleep, the rest, the recovery, the you know, day-to-day routine, the discipline of showing up on training on time, all those things, which we just assume people know. Yeah. Right. So we bring new sellers on. We put them into the onboarding program, and we just assume they know all these basics about even you know how to hold a conversation with another person, right? How to connect at a human level, let alone how to develop mental resilience in the face of rejection, which they're invariably going to face. Yeah. Right. Uh, we do none of that. Uh, and again, these other professions that are similar to ours in the respect that that's you know sort of a zero sum performance based profession are doing it much better than we are, and and we could do we could do better. And that's just yeah you know, one example. I mean yeah, the other one is is to a point you made earlier, which I think is such an important point, is that you know if you're hiring a number of people, yeah, you know, this is sort of the the fallacy of the onboarding programs for most companies is they assume that everybody's learning curve is the same. Yeah. And they're not, right? I mean, exactly. if you think you have the perfect onboarding program and a normal human being you know, is going to learn, you're kidding yourself. Everybody learns at different rates. And so, you know, not everybody gets it. I mean, I, I don't know, I was probably seven or eight months into my sales career before I finally started, the light bulb started going on about you know, things starting to make sense. And it was, you know, it was, it was a continuous process for many years, right? 
as I took on bigger and bigger accounts and so on, where it just took a certain amount of time to learn. And But we've certainly in the tech space now, it's like, you, know, you get X period of time, otherwise you're out of here. Yeah, and, and to, the, to the counter of that, I've seen so many people who it took so long to get it right. And then when they got it right, they just shot and they were just amazing, right? They were yeah. just brilliant. And, Me too. and, I, and I, in fact, one of the guys I coached at former business one salesperson of the year, the next year, after being weeks away from being fired. Oh, and, I, and I remember validating that and saying, look, you know, you, it all, everything he was doing right was everything he was doing was right apart from the deals weren't closing. Right. And his, his pipeline was under so much scrutiny. And it's, it's a bit like, you know, business is like the ultimate driver who's stuck behind a learner driver where they forget that they were in that, that, that position once as well. And it, it's metaphor. true. Like yeah. if you're, if you're confident in your hiring process, give these people time you have to do that. Providing you're confident in your hiring process. If you have no clue who you're hiring, then there's a strong chance you've hired someone who's not right for the job or not right for the company or, or, or they're in it for the wrong reasons. But if you're confident that you should support them and, and set them up for success. It's really simple. Be patient. Yeah. Well, and I think to buttress what you were saying is is that I know very few companies that actually have a data-based hiring approach, right? Where they say, look, we've got these sort of attributes that we're looking for that we're going to put a score onto. And our candidates need to have a certain score in order to qualify to be hired. But then what we're going to do is we're going to track those people after we hire them and find out whether we are right or not about those attributes yeah. or whether they correlate to hiring good people, right? And I, no one does that, or very few enterprises do that. And it's it's not that hard. Yeah, I, I've got a system I put in place at certain companies that, that do this, small companies. So it's not onerous. You can just do it with a Google Sheet initially. But start using the data that exists. You can use your own experience to, to guide you so that you take some of the emotion out of hiring, right? No, this person, wow, they're really a smooth talker. Well, yeah, is that really what you're hiring for? Yeah. Is And there's no excuse at this point. The, the tools exist very simply to be able to track and use data to find out whether we're hiring the right people and hiring for the right things. I'd, I'd argue that some organizations would even struggle to tell you what the competencies are they're looking for. <laughs> I don't think you have to argue that. I think that's true. Yeah. <laughs> the, the funny thing is, right, is some, some of the most effective work I've done around, around hiring from a sales enablement point of view is actually putting in safety nets around coachability. And I think mm -hmm. it's particularly in sales, it's such a core thing to look out for yep. in a candidate is coachability. And if you can build out some simple questioning frameworks that give you a peek into their mind of whether they are coachable or not, it's it's fifty percent of the job done. It really is. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can never trust a salesperson's numbers when they come in and say, you know, I was I, I blasted through Target last year and I'm the most successful salesperson ever. That's great, but that was selling that product in that market at that time. I'm more exactly. interested how how rounded you are as a learner and as a human being exactly. to see if you can put it in this company, right? That's the key it, thing. Exactly. All right, that that's a great place to end it because I agree 100 percent on that. <laughs> it's yeah, how well rounded, coachability, how well rounded they are as a human being, their values, their character. Uh, it's not what they did before, absolutely. All right, Aaron, we'll have to come back because we'll actually talk about what I prepared to talk about next time. Qualification discovery. So, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? 
Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn, Aaron Evans. Uh, I think I'm one of very few Aaron Evans is on there. You can't miss me. I've got very long hair and a, and a big beard. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if not, then uh, feel free to subscribe to my YouTube channel. It's Aaron Evans Sales Training on YouTube, uh, and you can see the stuff I train on there. Yeah, and I can vouch. They're very well put together, very well produced, and yeah, worth the investment of your time. So check those out. All right, Aaron, thank you very much. Look forward to talking soon. Lovely. Great to speak to you. Speak soon. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Aaron Evans, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help, and thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.